Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music, interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. Now, welcome our hosts, John the Vernomatic Verno and Metal Forever Mark. It's always heavy. It's how we do it here. Metal Mayhem, ROC. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. Any means that you have. Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, or the old style way. MetalMayhemROC.com. I'm your host, John the Vernomatic Verno. And tonight we have a good one. We have legendary rocker Don Doc and live on the phone, He's here to talk about the new release, The Lost Songs. Doc, in 1978 through 1981. Don, how are you tonight, buddy? Doing good. I'm actually in New Mexico. People forget that New Mexico is part of the United States. They go, oh, you live in Mexico. No, not Mexico, New Mexico. New Mexico. Um, I want to reacquaint you with your old buddy, Metal Forever Mark. Hello, Don. Yep. It's uh, nice to talk to you again. Believe it or not, it's been a year and a half since you've been here. And, um, well, it was wow. snowy and cold Rochester back then. And I guess you said you just had some snow yourself the other day. So, thank you. Nice yeah, to talk to you. It was weird that, you know, it's September, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know, last night I'm looking out my window and it's snowing. I'm like, okay. So, uh, and then you got California where it's 97 degrees, burning to the ground, and, you know, and Washington and Oregon and Phoenix, and, you know, there's all these millions of fires. It's tragic. And I'm just sitting up here in the mountains of New Mexico and Santa Fe, and it's just blue skies and everything's groovy and it snowed. But they say it's the first time it snowed in New Mexico since 1962 in September. Well, unfortunately, you just remind me of a whole other snow story that happened in Richmond, Virginia, before the first Rochester show. But we'll talk about that maybe briefly a little bit later. But um, so, Don, uh, tonight we just wanted to because you have a new well, it's a new release in many ways, but they're old songs um, from, again, like Vernomatic said, 78 to 81. And I think when you were riding around, when I was driving you in Rochester, kind of between the radio appearances that we had all kind of pre-show day, you had told me that uh, you kind of found these tapes. And you're like, hey, man, I think I found these old songs and they were still you know, playable. And so can you tell us the story? Like, how did you come across these? And then what was your thought when you found them? Well, you know, uh, you know, like everybody, you know, you move over your lifetime from house to house to house and. You know, and you keep piling up more junk in your garage that doesn't work or doesn't work. And, you you know, humans are all kind of pack rats. And so my garage, after 40 years of different homes in California, the garage was completely packed full of junk. But then I, I went to an auction. I bought a 64 Stingray Corvette convertible. And there was no way I was going to leave it sitting outside up in the canyons of L.A., so I'm like, I got to get this garage cleaned out, put my car away. So uh, I started cleaning the garage, hired a couple of guys in a truck and just said, keep that, get rid of that, keep that, get rid of that, keep with that. And at the end of the day, the joke was, you know, I threw away like 90% of everything I've been dragging around in my life for 30 years. It was all junk. 
But I found a tub, and I'd had those tapes, and I'd forgotten all about them, and we talked about it, and I, then I misplaced them. I put them on a shelf. They disappeared again, and then I pulled them down, and then, you know, the world had changed, and COVID was starting, and uh, our tours were getting canceled, and, and I decided to put these tapes up on the machines and see what was on them, and look at the tracking sheets, and it'd say, Michael Wagner. Hamburg, 1979, uh, Media Art Studios, Wynn Davis, uh, Redonda Beach, 1978. And I'm like, what is all this stuff? And it was just old songs that I wrote when I was very, very young, you know, in my early 20s. There were demos. I would sneak into studios at night, what we'd call in the downtime, between 1 o'clock in the morning and 6 a.m. when the studio wasn't booked. And my friends would let me go in there and do demos. And of course, I did a lot of demos in Germany with Michael. So in fact, two of the songs on this record are live recordings for me playing in a club in Hamburg called the Sounds Club. They're live recordings. They are what they are. And uh, so I decided to put them up and mix them and finish them. You know, some of the songs were done. It wasn't much I could do with them. They were what they were. I just remastered them. Some of the songs had a drum machine on them and there's a solo missing and you know, stuff like that. So we just finished them. And I just thought it'd be a nice, how do I put it, a peek in the window of my mind where I started out my career and I have my formative days when I was just starting out as a young kid trying to find my way of my writing style and my guitar style. My solos were different then. And so I just decided it'd be a cool thing to put out of stuff that was kind of what I call Three George, Jeff, and Mick. These were all recorded before their time. They didn't join the band until 1981. So these were all demos I did, you know, back in the day. And when I went to Germany in 79, Juan Crucier was the bass player in the band then. We did a tour as a three-piece, Juan Crucier, Greg Peck on drums, and myself on guitar and vocals. And we just, after the show every night, we go to Michael's studio and just stay up all night drinking Southern Comfort. Oh, no. <laughs> that was my choice. Yeah, sweet. Southern Comfort and Coke. And, you know, we stay up all night and just record songs. I had ideas and we put them down on tape and I go in and blast out a vocal performance. And, and I didn't want to change them. I could have made them better. I could have changed them. I could have re-recorded them. But that would have taken the beauty of away of what they were, you know. Plus, my voice sounded completely different, you know, when I was 23 or 4. And the guitar, my guitar playing, everything was different. So I just said, let's make the best out of it and make them sound as good as we can. And that's what we did. At any point were back in the day, were these songs ever considered for any docking records or were they just the formative years sort of honing your chops and as you said they were what they were only one of them which was hit and run and uh, actually there's a version of that song hit and run on uh an album that came out i think in the 90s called from conception which is a live recording of us playing in a club in like in the early 80s and apparently we're doing a version of Hit and Run. It's the same music, same everything, everything exactly the same, but the lyrics and the vocals are totally different. So that was kind of weird. So, you know, and I, I didn't know what was going on with that song. I'm like, I'm assuming it was a contender for Breaking the Chains. 
I was assuming, because, you know, it's complicated with breaking the chains. It came out in Germany, you know, first as Don Dokken. It was a picture of me in the cover. And then when George and Jeff and Mick joined the band, we just called it Dokken. Remixed the album, did it again. Wanted to add a couple songs. Hit and Run was a contender. But so I rewrote all the lyrics. Actually, Juan Crucier wrote all the lyrics, uh, the, new, the, the newer version that's on her now. And, uh, but it never made it. It just didn't make it on the record. I actually uh, put together a little sample of that song. Let's take a listen to it. It's uh, a little bit into it um, once the song gets going. This is Hit and Run from the Lost Songs, Dockin'. You take your chance, your chance on So, um, Don, so that was Hit and Run from um, The Lost Tapes by Dokken. And so, so Don, when you hear those songs, like, just, like, where does it take you, your mind? Like, what is, what, what's, the, what's your feeling when, when, kinda, when you hear that? Does it take, take you back? Well, yeah. And for, like, that song, when I heard the solo, I'm like, because I did all the solos on this record except for one solo. And that's Hit and Run. And I'm look, listening to it, I go, that's definitely not me playing. You know, that's Lynch. So when did George do the solo on this song? What year was that? So it must have been like the last song we demoed after George and Mick had joined the band. It's obviously George's style. But I don't have the memory of why it didn't make it on Breaking the Chains, why it wasn't a bonus track. I just don't know. And I had to call Juan Crucier, and I said, look, I'm putting this record together of all these demos. Remember, you and I went in the studio and cut like nine songs. Unfortunately, of the nine songs, only four or five of them could we save. The tape was so decomposed, the tape was so stretched out and worn out, it just wouldn't play. And Juan's going, yeah, I remember that song. I wrote the lyrics on the second version. I went, oh, I didn't remember that. So it was an interesting journey for me to listen to these songs brought back a lot of memories of being up till six o'clock in the morning recording and go back to our friend's house in Hamburg crash and sleep all day, get up at eight o'clock at night, get some dinner and hit the, hit the strip down the Reaper bond and, and play clubs to one o'clock in the morning. You know, when you're young, you can do that, you know? Yeah. You know, um, well, you kind of already answered this one a little bit because when we were looking at the credits for this album, there's definitely a lot of, um, musicians that are on there so i guess you had mentioned you play guitar on on most of those songs correct but then like you said that was definitely a george lynch solo because i'm like this sounds like lynch so so you're saying you played all the rest of the guitars on all the rest of the um tracks and then where did john levin fit in because he's in the credits too i think uh because john because there were three songs that i never put a solo on i didn't finish it so i had john come in and put the solos on three of the songs 
And that was on uh, Step Into the Light, the song No Answer, and what other song? I can't remember right now. So John came in, threw a couple solos down. Uh, like I said, a couple of songs had a drum machine, which sounded like crap. So I had BJ Zampa, our dock and drummer, and I sent him a song, and I said, can you put some real drums on these to make them sound just a little more up-to-date, you know, instead of a drum machine going boop-bop, boop-boop-bop, you know? So BJ threw drums on. John played some solos and a couple songs. But the rest of the songs, obviously the live versions of Prisoner and Liar are completely live recordings, no overdubs. That's all me playing guitar and solos. And so that's why there's a lot of people credited on the record. Don, uh, the next track we're going to listen to is uh, the song Back in the Streets. Give me a little history on this song. It's it's a kicker. Um, what do you remember about this, and what's the origin of this? That song, I think, I'm not going to hold me to it. I went to Germany in 79, and it was Juan Crucier and a drummer named Greg Pekka. We were a three-piece. And then we came back to America, started playing the club scene again. It still wasn't happening in L.A. It, by then, it was all alternative music, new wave, punk, you know, Plimsolls, Black Flag, X. So we were like, you know, it was we were out of fashion because we were a hard rock band. So we, I said, screw it. Let's go back to Germany and do another tour, which we did, which turned out to be a blessing. And same thing. We went back to Germany, and some guy let us go into a studio. I had a different lineup then with uh, Greg Leon, Gary Holland, and Gary Link. Different lineup of Dawkins. And we cut back on the streets. And I wrote that song about what we were doing. We're out in the streets playing clubs, you know. Sounds like like rock and roll. That's right. So that's how that song came about. And that tape disappeared for decades. And, you know, these songs recorded over four years in different, very different studios. America, Germany, you know, L.A. And I guess they all ended up in one box and then I found them. Well, they found their way to Metal Mayhem ROC, so let's take a sneak peek at Back in the Streets, Dokken, The Lost Songs. Don, I think I think you answered this question too because when I heard this song again, I, I was like, I knew I heard that song another time, and maybe it was on that release that 
from conception release, which was that a bootleg then, uh, or or, or the uh, the back in the streets bootleg album, which was the guy the guy actually stole the masters from these songs and put them out when we got famous, and there was five songs or six songs on it, and you know I didn't think much of that record. We were starting to make sell gold and platinum records, and I told my manager this guy's selling this record called Back in the Streets, and it's got all this weird credits in the back, and it's all wrong, and you know, should I sue him? And he goes, Don, the guy's probably not going to sell anything. And uh, it'll cost you tens of thousands of dollars to sue this guy in another country. Just let it go. So I did. Then I found out over 15 years, the guy made like a million dollars in selling that record. Right, because idiots like Vertimatic and I are running around finding it in the record store going, oh, cool, we're going to get this bootleg, <laughs> you know, unfortunately. but wow. Yeah, but it was a bootleg. But, you know, the guy never gave me a dime. Never paid me my royalties. He he got rich off that album. So talking to John Levin, I said, "Well, there's four or five songs on that album belong to me. I wrote them, played them." And John goes, "You own them, man. You know that guy doesn't own shit. You know, just take them back and add it to the record." So I did. And uh, back in the streets, uh, I have to laugh when I hear my vocals because my voice sounds so trebly and young. You know. Okay, so we've got one more um, uh, from this album, and it actually it is the one that did make break break in the chain. So, Fernamatic, you want to cue up uh, the little snippet of felony, and then we'll let Don talk about that one. Don, this song definitely has a flavor feel of some of that new wave of British heavy metal movement uh, going on. And it's I heard damn heavy for its time. And here's a little bit of trivia I didn't tell anybody else. That's not me singing. Who who is that? Because even that first track, very Euro influenced. Who's on vocals? Uh, Juan Crucier. Okay, okay, uh, from Rat. When was that song written, and when was that recorded? Well, it had to have been 79, because Juan was in the band 79, 80, 78, 79, 80, 81, then he left to go with Rat. And so when I, when I heard it, I said, 
that doesn't sound like me. You know, it sounds like, and then I went, oh, wait a minute. Because when we were a three-piece, you know, Juan sang some songs, I sang some songs. That's the way it was, you know. I got to ask you something. How much of a trip has it been listening to the stuff like and just flashbacks? You're like, oh, my God, I remember this. I remember that shit you haven't even thought about in years. Do you find yourself going through that constantly now? Yeah. When, I mean, I didn't expect this record. to. T- I thought, you know, hey, you know what? We're writing a new studio album. You know, it'll be out for this summer. And then COVID hit. And all of a sudden, the whole writing process came to a stop. The band and I couldn't get together to work together. Because some of my boys live in Connecticut. And, you know, I was staying more in New Mexico. John was in L.A. And I said, so that's when this thing came up. And I just took it to the label and said, you know, I got all these songs. I don't, you know, know if you guys would be interested in them. But it is a, what I would say, the very, very early seeds of docking, you know, and where my head was at and where what I was listening to. And that's one of the reasons we went to Germany is because when the new wave scene, everybody talks these documentaries about the rock and roll scene in LA and and Van Halen and Quiet Riot and Docking and Rat and blah blah blah. And I'm like, well that's not that's only a half truth. Those bands didn't even come around till like eighty two, three. You know? The only band I knew that made it off the strip, because uh, we used to play with them a lot, was Van Halen. And Van Halen's album, I think, came out in 78. And I remember all the bands that were playing the Starwood and the Whiskey. We thought, wow, Van Halen got a deal, so we're all going to get a deal now, you know? And it didn't happen. It was almost like Van Halen did that first album, which was genius. You know, it's still genius. And all of a sudden, all this new wave and the Plimsolls and my Sharona and I'm not knocking those bands. It just that it became what was playing the clubs. Nobody wanted to hear rock and roll all of a sudden. They all wanted to hear uh, alternative and new wave and punk. And they're listening to Black Flag and, and the Plimsolls and the Mentors and the Weasels and all that stuff. So they had a punk scene the alternative scene and the rock and roll scene kind of died after Van Halen just slipped under the wire with that first genius album. And, you know, within eight months they were playing arenas. So that's why I said, I'm out of here. I'm going to Germany because we were always born listening to Saxon, Judas Priest, except King Diamond, you know, all the, I was into the European bands. Yeah, well, hence why I mentioned that had a new wave of British flow, uh, flavor to it. Oh, yeah. I was into Saxon and and Judas Priest. And I remember. Diamond Head. Oh, we lose you, Don? Everything already over there? Spirits getting the best of you? Yeah, lost you for a minute there. You know, I'm up in the mountains here. So. Germany, everybody asked me, said, why in the hell of all the bands in L.A., when you're playing with Van Halen and Quiet Riot and all these bands, why in the hell did you go to Germany? And I said, because the music they were playing there was what I was into. 
and that shows down your true, I guess, metal roots that you went over to Europe where all these uh, metal bands were really getting their start before they came here to America. And then, again, to your point, that's then shortly at, then after that's when the L.A. scene hit. I mean, I remember seeing Judas Priest and Saxon and Accept, you know, play at the Whiskey. You know, they weren't they weren't famous <laughs> in America. They were nobody. And, you know, and, and actually... Yeah, now, I was gonna say now that you said that, when you think about Tooth and Nail, that album was probably the heaviest or the heavier of all of those releases at that time when all those LA bands were playing, I guess, a little more glammy stuff in some ways. Yeah, everything went glam, and all of a sudden, you know, Poison came on the scene and they had a couple of hits, and they had a song, you know, Unskinny Bop Bop, and Look What the Cat Dragged In, and and I'm like, this is not the kind of lyrics I write. I don't get it. Last week, we had Michael Sweet on the, on the show, and we Mark proposed that question to him about did the term hair, hair metal ever irk him and rub him the wrong way? Unfortunately, I think Dokken may have been lumped into that mainly by cosmetically the hair, if anything, but they all had it. Okay, we all had long hair, you know? We were all ratting our hair out. We had, you know, Aquanet, and everybody's hair was super long, and, you know, we all had long hair. So what? I mean, everybody had long hair. And how that turned into hair metal, I don't know, because, you know, Poison was doing the whole, you know, when I remember the first time I saw their posters on Sunset Boulevard, uh, the four pictures of them, I didn't know if they were chicks or dudes. I just didn't know. And that's no offense to Poison. I mean, no offense to Cece or Brad or anybody, but, you know, Brad had his baby face, and, and I'm like, damn. So all the bands started going down this spandex road, you know, bigger hair, bigger hair, more eyeliner, more shadow. My, And then we kind of fell in that trap, you know, and unlocking key with that stupid, I hate that album cover. We're wearing, like, these outfits, and we're, our hair's all super long, and we're all wearing some trippy clothes and rock clothes and you know, I didn't dig it. You know, I didn't dig it. And I remember we bought those clothes and there was some guy that was making clothes for Priest and Motley and everybody. And I think we wore those clothes one time on stage and I said, screw this. I don't like this. This is baloney. And I put on my leather jacket and I put on my fucking leathers and that was it. I went right back to what I used to do. Yeah. So the hair metal thing, you know, there was a lot of bands that came out you know, in the mid 80s that weren't even from L.A. You know, I mean, Poison, I think, was from Ohio or something. And there were bands coming from the East Coast and the Midwest. And everybody was trying to make it in L.A. But there were seven record companies there on the Sunset Strip. You know, but luckily by then, I was on my third world tour. We beat we beat them, you know. We came, we did our first tour with Blorge to Colt in late 81 with Aldo Nova. In 82 or 3, we did our first arena tour with Ronnie James Dio on the Last Line Tour. Mm. By 84 5, when the hair metal, quote unquote, seen it, we were on tour with Judas Priest, Turbo Lover. So we, all, we were always one of the bands that played with the heavy bands. We never played with Poison or Winger. A million, I'm, not, I'm not ragging on those bands. They all had some great songs. But we didn't tour with Cinderella and and all the rap, we didn't tour with any of those bands. You know, we were touring with Judas Priest and ACDC, and we did an ACDC tour all over Europe in stadiums. And then we did Scorpions and Metallica and Van Halen and 
we were doing, you know, more, we always were playing with the heavier bands because any Dawkins fan knows, yes. Do you remember Dawkins of the MTV videos of In My Dreams, It's Not Love, Alone Again, The Hunter, uh, Just Got Lucky? You know, yeah, the more commercial radio songs, but any Dawkins fan knows we had this dark side, this heavy side, like Paris is Burning, you know, I mean, we had a real, we were double bass, full tilt boogie, you know, we had a lot of, you know, very fast up-tempo metal songs, but people didn't know that, I think, because they just knew, oh, I like Doc, and I like that song in my dreams, but, you know, it was a commercial rock song, but you listen to the rest of the record, there's songs like When Heaven Comes Down, and Heaven Sent, and, you know, Kiss of Death, there's a lot of, he- we, were, we were a heavy band, Ali said we were a schizophrenic band. <laughs> well, I, I feel vindicated, Don, because you're like the fourth artist now from the era that has had that same opinion. And me as a fan, I always felt like that tag cheap, cheapened it because it cheapened the musicianship. And to your point, that's a great reminder. I mean, you did go out and play with all those heavy bands. Although Judas Priest, I think, uh, I guess you want to call it, you know, they, they sucked into it too for just a small period with Turbo. But then they then they went back to the metal stuff. But um, by the way, this, this reminds us your name has come up another time. We we just we had an interview with um, Mark Weiss from the decade that rocked, who said he shot you know all those album covers and a lot of the video shoots, and he said that you were one of the guys that gave him a key to your house when you were on the road when he was in L.A. and let him stay at his place um, at your place. I'm sorry. So what, what was your relationship with Mark and like you know, how did you get to kind of become friends with him? Well, you know, he was he was one of the top photographers. There was like the four main guys in L.A. It was Mark Weiss, Niels Lozauer, Rob Halflin. He'd be the guy in Europe that shot, shot all the European shoots, and Glenn LaFerman. And those were like the three top dog photographers. But, you know, Mark and I just became friends because we were both dogs, you know. So, you know, he was single, I was single. And, you know, when I was on the road, which was a lot, and he come to L.A. and I said, you know, I had a really beautiful place to stay. And and I, you know, I had a really bitching house. And I say, you know, you don't have to get a hotel room if you're coming out to see, you know, shoot Motley and Ozzy and Van Halen. He'd be doing three, four shoots a week. So I'd say, here's the keys to my house. Have at it. And uh, that's how we became really good friends. And we've been friends for 40 years ever since. But I think his photo studio that he was shooting all the bands with was only like four box blocks from my house. So it all worked out for him. Have you happened to see any of uh, the book, The Decade That Rocked? I'm staring at it right now. It's on my coffee table. Beautiful. Yeah, that's we got a digital advance, and I keep looking at it, and it's just one of those things. Every time you look at it, you, you, just, you remember something, and you discover something new. He, he really did capture, you know, him and Niels Lozar. I have to give Neil credit, too. I think, you know, he really, Mark really captured the 80s, the, the peak of the 80s. You, you said four photographers. There's Neil, there's Halfin, there's Mark. Who's the fourth? Glenn LaFerman. Glenn LaFerman uh, was a known photographer. And he actually, I think the rumor, I don't know if it's true, he became like a millionaire because he was the last guy to shoot uh, Bob Marley within three weeks of him dying. So he ended up owning those photos 
And whenever you see a Bob Marley shirt, which, you know, there's a million of them out there, you know, you can buy in Venice Beach. That's Glenn LaFerman. He shot Bob Marley. So that that made him a very, very wealthy man. Oh, good for him. Uh, yeah, that, that name doesn't ring a bell. The, the other three gentlemen, um, you know, obviously we've been looking at these pictures for years. Uh, well, Zo, you know, Zlozar was the first guy, I think, to shoot Van Halen. I mean, oh, yeah. He he was tight with those boys. Yeah, his his book is fantastic. That doc- oh, I didn't read the book. <laughs> you know, he had a book. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's fantastic. It's uh, I think he well, he has two. He has a special Van Halen one, and he doesn't have a book like uh, Mark's where it's it spawns the a whole decade, but. It's fantastic. Uh, the documentary he has on Netflix or somewhere is fantastic. So, hey, uh, listen, Don, any uh, new music in the works? What can fans expect? You mentioned something, but then COVID hit. What do you guys got going on in terms of 2021? Well, like I said, the COVID hit, and I guess it was good timing, and that's when I had to go in the hospital and have surgery on my spine, which is all, you know, I don't need to talk about that. It's all over the internet, what happened. Mm-hmm. And it didn't go well. So, you know, five and a half hour surgery, I came out of it and my right arm and hand are paralyzed. So I can't play guitar anymore. So I'm screwed. So I'm doing physical therapy and hoping for the best. And they say, give it a year and a half. It'll come back. I think they're full of shit. It's been eight months and my hand still doesn't move. But uh, so I said, okay, boys, my hand's screwed. Uh, that's when I got nominated in the, into the rock and roll hall of fame. I showed up that night, which I probably shouldn't have. I think I was still on drugs from the doctor. And, uh, so I did that and I said, well, let's just call it a day. Let me heal. Give me six months to do physical therapy and we'll see what happens. And then George Lynch called me and said, why don't we do a thing? Like I play Lynch mob and there'll be Lita Ford and you guys. And I'll come on stage and play four songs with you guys. So we, we put that all together. It was going really well. Then COVID hit, and it all came to a screeching halt. So that's why I decided to do the Lost Songs. And lucky for me, when we did Broken Bones, our last record, which was almost five years ago now, you know, I told everybody, you know, I, was, I told the press, this is it. It's my last record. I'm not doing any more records. I'm done. You know? I didn't see the point in it because there are no more record companies. Columbia, Chrysalis, Electra, Geffen, A&M. I mean, the list is long and varied. They're all gone. They're all been bought up by Rhino, you know, or, Universe, or Universal Music. So there are no more record companies that promote bands and take young bands and do a video and help them out and get them in magazines. And there are just no more labels like that. So I said, what's the point? You know, I'm not going to bust my ass for nine months making a great record like Broken Bones was, in my opinion. And you put it out on Monday and on Wednesday, it's on, it's on Spotify for free. And I'm like, screw this. I'm not doing it. So I stopped. But luckily, when we did that album, we wrote like 20 songs for that record. And we picked the 11 best that we thought were the best. So after this whole COVID thing hit, I went back to my recording studio gear, pulled up the hard drives. John Lever and I sat down and said, what did we write back then? You know, it was like, oh, I remember that song. That was pretty cool. Well, that's a good song. That's pretty cool. You know, and they just weren't done. So we so now we're right in the middle of finishing all these songs we wrote 
four or five years ago. We've gotten eight so far. We need five more. And we got a record. And so now maybe it all works out for the best. Hopefully, God willing, that this pandemic will go away and we'll have a new studio album out for next summer when we go back on tour. Yeah, Don, that, that would be great, by the way. And it's a, it's a whole different topic for a different day in the sense that we just, and I know it's not just in the rock metal world, but you know this idea that artists just aren't getting making money from their music anymore. But uh, on the flip side, it's a catch-22 because you want to keep new music out there to stay relevant. Fans want to hear it, and then it helps you helps you tour behind it. So, I mean, with Dawkins, we're lucky, and I know that <clears throat> because we came out in the eighties, choking from all the smoke coming in my house from the fires. I mean, so anyway. We got lucky. Yeah, we're playing stadiums. You know, we did the Monsters of Rock, Van Halen, Scorpions, Doc, and Metallica was open for us. You know, um, we made a lot of money in our career. And I, I'm not bragging, it's just we did. And we didn't have to tour anymore. But as any artist, be it a painter or an artist or a sculptor, you, you don't sculpt or paint or make music for the almighty dollar, you do it because that's what you are. You're an artist. And I kind of lost sight of that for a few years because I was frustrated that I'm thinking, man, we did this great album and nobody even knows about it. It was very frustrating. So um, the bottom line is, though, I can't stop. I got to keep writing. I just do. I just write and write and write and write. I just write constantly. Well, that's what you do. You're an artist. And, you know, what, what else are you going to do? Yeah, what else am I going to do? It's another house with my dog. Cody's looking at me going, yeah. My dog's sitting there going, give me a pet. I'll take a pet. And so that's what happened, you know. So we're going to make another record. I don't have a title for it. I'm hoping next. I mean, if things get better after the election, all the social unrest, the demonstrations, um, who knows will be president, the COVID, you know, I'm thinking like next year is going to be a hell of a year for touring. Yeah, I think there's pent up demand, no doubt. And, you know, how much of everything's going on is politicized right now, to your point. So it'd be so we, we just I think the consensus is that people are just we're all ready to get back to, quote unquote, normal. You know, like, yeah, whatever shows. normal is. Yeah, yeah. We did, two, you know, we did two shows last month. We saw right that. Yeah. People are like Dawkins going on, going to go out and play for 4000 people. And it was social distancing. Uh, it was a 5,000-seater. They let 2,500 people in. People behaved themselves. They were all spread out eight feet. Uh, we did another show the next night in Arkansas. Same thing. I, I, I remember, I guess, Great White did a show, and they all got and they got a bunch of shit for it. You know, how, how dare you do a show with COVID? And, you know, and they were all apologetic. And I would have told them, you don't have to apologize for anything, man. You didn't bring this on. You just went out there and did your job and you had your contract and and tried to bring some rock and roll, you know, to a show. But you can't blame Great White. I mean, for, you know, for social, it's such bullshit. I, I went, they kind of backed down and said, we're sorry, we will never do it again. And, and we're the opposite. I'm like, look, we're going to go out and play and just wear your mask, stay eight feet apart, live by the rules. We'll give you a great show. Everything will be fine. I am not going to let this thing shut my world down. But I admit, 
you know, we did six flights over three-day period. Uh, a lot of masks, a lot of traveling. I had security guards surrounding us, so people wouldn't try to get to us for autographs and stuff like that. And I told the boys, I said, you know, guys, I think we're like, we're like playing with fire here. You know, <laughs> it's only going to take one person, and we're all going to get it. So, I just we had a show this month, two shows in Texas. We have two shows next month. And I said, guys, let's just pull the plug, make a new record, concentrate on the new album, make new songs. Everybody get your pen and paper out. And uh, just Chris McCarville, our bassist, he just sent me a song like two nights ago. And he, in the past, he hasn't participated that much. And he sent me a song. You know, I was like, man, this is a killer song. And I said, dude, this is a great song. This has got to go on the record. So we're all just writing songs and hoping for next summer. You know, I know everybody in the business. I know every band on the planet. We tour with them all. I talk to them periodically. And everybody's in the same boat. They're just making music and getting ready for next year, 2021. And hoping that, you know, things get better. The only band I think that's out there right now, which is kind of a cool thing, is Metallica doing that drive-in concerts where you get in your car for 125 bucks, six people are allowed per car. You go to a drive-in movie and you watch the Metallica show. That's pretty. That's a pretty smart idea, you know? So uh, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and then, you know, speaking of that streaming stuff, uh, other bands are starting to experiment with different formats of that. So, like, for example, Striper just previewed their... Um, their new album, they kind of had three different like listening viewing parties, and then they said that they're going to go to a soundstage, and they're, they're, they've already recorded it, I guess. They got like pr- professional seven cameras and did the whole album front to back live, and then they're going to go back and do one of their uh, older albums, I think Soldiers Under Command, and do the same thing, and then stream that. And there's just more of these streaming platforms, which, again, never replaces the live show, but um, yeah, there's some cool fan engagement interaction. So maybe we get some cool things out of this from a technology perspective. But um, I'm glad you mentioned the the shows because we, we weren't really sure if we wanted to ask you about that because I know that, you know, like you said, there was some negative pushback. But um, by the way, Chris is a good singer too, right? <laughs> he's he's, uh, he's a great singer in Max, yeah. Max Explosion. I mean, he can hold his own as a yeah. lead singer, you know. And yeah. actually, John, who hates to sing, has a really good voice. So we all have singers in the band. And Chris is great. And, uh, you know, it just, we're all just trying to write songs. And I'm not going to let, you know, the world, I call it the the apocalyptic year, 2020. 10, 15 years from now, the next generation will look back and go, what happened in 2020? I, I hope, right? People <laughs> dying and the, the election and social unrest and Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and, you know, people are rioting and smashing in buildings and which, you know, I have my own opinions on that. If you want to protest against, you know, someone getting killed by a stupid cop, you know, George uh, Floyd, you know, I understand that. But when you get all these thugs and gangbangers that just come into those towns with sledgehammers and crowbars just to smash in windows to still a flat screen TV, they don't give a damn about George Floyd. They don't give a damn about Black Lives Matter. I don't buy it. I've seen it in the news. They just want to come and create havoc and and steal stuff and get what they can 
because they feel they're entitled to it. And that's bullshit. You know, I always laugh and they say, yep, the first thing they go for is the liquor stores. <laughs> <laughs> then, then electronics, then the drug stores. <laughs> yeah. They go, okay, we got to go to Best Buy and get all the TVs. And you see a guy with two TVs in each hand, you know, trying to run down the street and you see women with, you know, a big giant pile of clothes and Nike shoe boxes running down the street. They don't care about social unrest. They don't care about Black Lives Matter. They're just ghetto and they just want to take advantage of the situation. And I don't, I don't, I don't buy into that. You know, you look at poor Portland with all these fires and Medford, Oregon completely wiped out almost in two cities. And they've had 110 days of rioting every day. And this stuff pisses me off. And it gives me a lot to write about right now on this new record. And there will be politically oriented lyrics on this record because I'm had it. I'm fed up. One of my favorite albums that you've done, like post all the heyday stuff, was Erase the Slate because I thought it was super heavy. And strange, strangely, Striper just came out with a new album and they have a track called Divider on it, which is their heaviest song by far on the album. And Michael Sweet said it's their most requested uh, song and people, the fans are raving about it. So if you've got a couple songs to write, just throwing one in there. If you can maybe throw two or three heavier ones in there, that'd be cool. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Okay. <laughs> Especially if you're angry and pissed off, you know that's the perfect moment to do that. <laughs> yeah, but it's you know what this will be a typical docking record where the songs are very heavy and very aggressive, but the lyrics will probably be very typical me melodic and harmonies and your your docking sound i'll be singing melodic i'm not a heavy metal singer i never was and i can't i can't do it i can't do that cookie monster stuff and uh so i always call it cookie monster you know i want cookie <laughs> cookie give me cookie i can't do that so um you know it's gonna be melodic and heavy and harmonies the lyrics will be whatever my heart dictates but the songs will be heavy i mean like earlier, look at Felony, 40 years ago. It's heavy. Yeah. You know, um, I don't just write ballads and pop songs. I mean, I have a heavy side to me, and I still listen to a lot of heavy bands to keep my wits about me, to keep myself from, you know. I put a solo album out this year called Solitary, which is just all ballads, you know, 11. I had to get it out of my system. I had all 20 years of poetry. I put it to music. I hired the best musicians in the business to play on it. Very famous musicians. Tony Franklin, Michael Thompson, Alex Acuna. You know, all my, all my buddies from back in the day that are now very famous musicians. And I just played acoustic guitar and sang and just gave them the music and said, run with it. And uh, it's called Solitary, and it's a great album. So I got that out of my system as far as my cathartic side of my soul. And now I'm, I want to write a record that just kicks ass from start to finish. All right. Well, I think Vernomatic and I will support that. And um, Don, by the way, we appreciate you spending all this time with us. Um, it's Don Dawkin. We're talking about the lost songs and then um, we've certainly taken deep dives into some other things with Dawkin and um, maybe you've given us a two-part series interview tonight. But um, by the way, Don, uh, we had one little segment. We just figured since we're already kind of talking like this to 
uh, throw in. It's called our Mount Rushmore, um, and it's it's basically we were going to see if you could tell us your top favorite four bands that you'd like to tour with or go on the road with, and if you could kind of pick any four to go on the road again, who who would they be? We've got a little show uh, uh, intro to this, so we're gonna we're gonna play that, and then we're gonna ask you for the Mount Rushmore. Many have tried, most have failed, only a few survived. This is the Mount Rushmore of metal. Yeah, so Don, do you have four bands that you just love touring with or that you'd tour them any any moment, anywhere, any day if they asked you to go on the road with them or vice versa? The the answer to that is who haven't we toured with? <laughs> yeah. You know, we've toured with ACDC, Judas Priest, Van Halen, Scorpions, Metallica, Sammy Hanger's Red Rockers before he was in Van Halen, um, Ted Nugent. You know, we've toured with everybody. So to say, who would you like to tour again with? You know, if I wanted to do a tour of my favorite bands I've already toured with, I would say Aerosmith. That was a great tour. Permanent Vacation, Aerosmith Dawkins. That was an amazing tour we did. Sold out every night. We all got along great. I remember my son was born. Uh, how I remember that, 1988. We did that tour, and my son was born on the Aerosmith tour. And I was talking to Steven Tyler one night. I said, oh, his mother just called me, and I guess I'm a father, and he's a boy, and I don't know what to name him. And and she said, oh, John. And I said, oh, not John, not a nah, not a biblical name. And I said, hey, how about Tyler? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Steven, would you mind if I just named him Tyler? You know, just kind of was sitting here shooting the shit. And he goes, yeah, that's cool. And I see, he goes, you know, I said, if anything happens to me, will you kind of look after him? And he said, yeah. So my son's name is Tyler. <laughs> hey, um, I don't know if you have Joe Perry's phone number, but send him a text. Today's his 70th birthday. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Let alone he got out of the 70s. And, you know, he's been um, having a little difficulty last couple of years health-wise. But, um, yeah, Joe's 70 Joe? today. Oh, Joe, yeah, he had a few... Uh heart issues and stuff yeah yeah well we did when we did the permanent vacation tour that was what i called their first straight tour they've been drug addicts you know and joe left the band they brought in joy crispo and all these other people and and we went on tour with them and honestly without blowing my own horn we were kick we were kicking aerosmith's ass for the first four or five you know, tour songs or shows because they were kind of like trying to find, I, I looked like, they seemed like they were trying to find their way. Like, how can we go on stage straight and still kick ass? Yeah. And they did. And they, and they stepped up, you know, cause we were out there just burning it down. And, and all of a sudden I watched Aerosmith get better and better and better and better every night. And they were straight and they didn't hide the fact they're the toxic twins and this and that. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much of what I know privately, but, yeah. you know, you know, Joe plays with the Alice Cooper. Uh, yeah. With Johnny Depp, Alice Cooper. Uh, what is it? Hollywood vampires. Hollywood vampires. Thank you. And, you know, and Joe is, you know, pushing 70 and today is 70 and you got, you take a, you know, someone like Johnny who's in his fifties and he wants to play and he wants to go out and party at night. And, you know, Joe, I think Joe tried to keep up with them. <laughs> yeah, well, and yeah. I don't think that worked out so well for him. So so we had Aerosmith. Who else is in your Rushmore? Uh, I loved playing 
with uh, scorpions, of course. They're my good buddies. I love playing with scorpions. Their music is very similar to ours, very heavy harmony and guitar oriented. Love playing with scorpions. They're the sweetest guys in the world. Every time they come to Southern California, they call their agents and say, we want Dawkins to open for us. And I've always found that very um, grateful for them to do that. So I love playing with Scorpions. I love playing with Aerosmith. Uh, I hated playing with Kiss. That was awful. So I never want to do that again. And that's another story. That was a tour, that it, that Kiss tour. Um, I loved playing with Sammy Hager before Van Halen and the Red Rockers because he just treated us so nice and so good. And if, you know, we could bring back the legends from the past, like Ronnie James Dio, God rest him, um, my very first arena tour with the last line tour, touring with Dio was a blast. I mean, he was so good to us. I know how old I was because I turned 30. I turned 30 on the Dio tour. The reason I know that is because Ronnie threw me a surprise birthday party. And that showed what a cool guy Ronnie was. Yeah, you know? Ronnie was great. Um, if there was bands I could play with that I haven't, I'd want to play with Deep Purple, you know, Richie Blackmore or else, you know, I'd love to play with Deep Purple. And I'd love to play with, uh, you know, I, I guess that's about it. You know, I, like I said, I play with every band on the planet. There's not many bands we haven't toured with. So I'd love to, I did a few shows with Deep Purple, like two, you know, in my career. But I really loved playing with them. They were great. And uh, I can't think of anybody else right now. If anybody, if I'd want to tour, tour with, I've already played with them. Yeah. You know, that'd be Saxon. We did the Bakken Festival last year, Saxon, Dawkins. That was a lot of fun. And then we did Accept, Dawkins. That was a great tour. Uh, we did all of Europe with Accept. We had a blast on that tour. So there's a lot of bands I'd like to play with. And I've already played with them. So to answer your question, there is no answer. Don, I just wanted to chime in real quick before we wrap here. Just um, a, kind of a little bit of a personal thank you um, from our end. Um, we had, it was interesting, you know, I was fortunate because, uh, you know, Dokken wasn't in Rochester for almost 18 or 20 years. And then we had you guys come almost two times within a year and a half, uh, technically three shows because we had the acoustic one in there. And uh, we got a chance to know you better and, and Wild McBrown and, um, John and Ira and Chris and you you guys were just pro start to finish. You did every meet greet we asked for. You went to all the radio appearances. We dragged you on TV. Didn't one of those shows get snowed out and we had to play a couple later? <laughs> the very first one. I had a sold out venue, my very first concert promoting experience. Actually, we were at overflow capacity. The the the, the venue owner is like, Mark, you can't sell any more tickets for this thing. And then you call me and it's bright and sunny in Rochester in freaking December, 70 degrees. And you're telling me there's a snowstorm in Richmond. I'm like, you got to be effing kidding me. And, uh, yeah, so that, you know, but we got through that. I remember like it was yesterday. It was at the German house. Oh, yeah. Great venue. And then, you know, we had our acoustic show the second time you came back. And um, I was really looking forward to coming to Rochester because I used to have a girlfriend lived in Rochester. <laughs> Her name was, uh, she was a really gorgeous looking blonde named Sophia. And I actually met her on the road at one of those shows. And she was a hottie. And I thought, oh, boy, I'll get to run into Sophia again. And that didn't happen. And then the show got canceled. <laughs> and I remember we were stuck somewhere. We couldn't get to the show for the German House show. And we were all in the same hotel. And the funny thing was it was 
Dokken and Brett Michaels band, they were both staying there. And uh, the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> <laughs> I met her in New York and I drug her ass down to Florida. And, <laughs> and I, I met her, she came out to the pool in Florida. It was Brett Beecher in the band at the time. And she comes walking down the pool in this little bikini and the whole band went, holy shit. And I went, yep. So that was it. So I have great memories of playing the German house. You, you made it happen. We got there. It wasn't easy. We pulled off the show and, you know, it all worked out. Yep. No, thank you for that. And by the way, we got some great YouTube footage from all those shows, all three of them. So, uh, at least we got that. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people watch those things. So it's, it's really awesome. So, all right, Don, we, we gotta, uh, we gotta, we gotta wrap. Thanks so much for your time. Stay safe. Okay. And, and be well. I am. It stops snowing, so I'm happy. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Don. We appreciate it. Have a great day. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE-DV Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.